Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at URMSummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to E-H-R-L-U-N-D.S-E for more info. And now your host, Finn McKenty. Hello, everybody. I am Finn McKenty. Welcome back to the URM podcast. I said welcome back, implying that you have listened to the show before. Maybe you haven't. So if this is your first time, welcome for the very first time to the URM podcast. If you're a loyal listener, then welcome back. Some of you know me, some of you don't. Uh, for anybody who does not know me, I am the director of marketing here at URM Academy. I've been doing marketing for a long time in various different capacities. Uh, before this, I started the music and audio channel at Creative Live, which you may be familiar with. Uh, worked with a bunch of folks in the URM family over there, such as uh, Al and Joey, uh, Chris Crummett, Kurt Ballou, uh, Jamie King. Steve Evitz, you get, oh yeah, uh, Nolly and Matt from Periphery, Kevin Lyman, you get the idea. Uh, before that, I did marketing for Abercrombie and Fitch back when they were like on top of the world, um, mostly focused on inter opening international stores over in like Asia and Europe. And then before that, I worked at a product design consulting firm, like a design agency, uh, where we did a bunch of work for like Swiffer and Febreze and bounce and all that kind of stuff. So these big, giant, global, billion-dollar brands. Uh, and also do a bunch of freelance kind of fun music stuff. I've written for like Metal Sucks and Metal Injection and Decibel and Substream, uh, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, oh, yeah, I also do some of the marketing for Horizon Devices. You know them, the Precision Drive and for Get Good Drums. Also, sell a little bit of merch for A Day to Remember and Periphery and Issues. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've sold, like to me, marketing is fundamentally, you know, it's about selling shit. And I've sold a lot of shit in a lot of different ways. Uh, I'm telling you this not uh, to brag, but because I believe that you should only listen to people who uh, can speak with some degree of authority on the stuff that they're talking to talking about. So do not listen to self-appointed experts who will tell you how to do a thing that they have never actually done before. Uh, and I will leave it up to you to decide whether I am one of those people or not. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm coming from. So I am excited to be back here. I love doing these Dear Finn episodes. And with that, I will get into the first question, which is from our friend Amrish. If you don't know Amrish, he does uh, the student support for URM, does an amazing job at it. If you've ever filed a support ticket uh, or had a question, you probably interacted with him. Anyhow, his question is, is being proficient in music and writing music just as important as building an image and branding? Would you say that one is more important than the other? I'm going to say... Uh, that I, I, I think both of those things are important, but not important at the same time. What I think is most important is charisma, because at the end of the day, being in a band, being a musician, I'm, so I'm going to assume that we're not talking about being a session musician, because that's a different deal. But if you want to be a performer, if you want to be in a band, at the end of the day, you are in the entertainment industry. And in the entertainment industry, the single most important thing is charisma. Charisma, uh, as I will define it, is that people want to pay attention to what you are doing. That could mean that they like you. That could mean that they hate you. Either way, people want to pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, an example of 
so we can think of lots of examples where you know everybody loves whoever the person is because they've got so much charisma that anything they day that they say is just so magnetic and charming that we all love them. But it can work the other way too. You don't have to be there. There's care. There's charisma. Uh, you know, a couple of good examples would be like Dave Mustaine and Lars Ulrich from Metallica, obviously, who uh, are not the most likable people in the world. But we want to pay attention to everything they say, even if we say that we don't want to pay attention. Like everything, every time they talk, we do pay attention anyway, even if it makes us mad. Uh, even if we, you know, then want to go rant about how annoying or stupid they are or whatever, the fact of the matter is we're paying attention and that's their job. Uh, you don't have to be good looking either. That's not the same thing. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to name any names, but we can, oh, I'll say Jack Black since he's, he's not listening to this. I was going to use an example of somebody from like a heavy band, but they might be listening or their friends might be listening. So I don't want to do that. Jack Black is a great example. Uh, he's not the greatest looking guy in the world, but just charisma off the fucking charts. Um, and so that's what I think. To, so getting back to Amrish's original question, I think that is the most important attribute for people who want to be performers, who want to be in a band. I think it's charisma. Charisma is helpful in any line of work. So a charismatic attorney is going to be more successful than an attorney who is not charismatic. A charismatic graphic designer is going to be more successful than a graphic designer who is not charismatic. But you don't have to be charismatic to succeed in those fields because at, at the end of the day, people are hiring you to be a great attorney or a great graphic designer or whatever. And being charismatic is just kind of a bonus that's going to make your career a little bit better. On the other hand... When you're a performer, charisma is the key attribute. You're an entertainer. Your job is to get people to pay attention to what you're doing uh, and have a good time doing so, hopefully. But uh, attention is the currency when you're an entertainer. And so you could be great at music. You could be bad at music. You could have a put a lot of effort into your image or not put a lot of it. it none of that matters unless you have charisma. And, and, and here's the reason why it's important to understand this is that let's let's get back to Jack Black as an example. He's you know very uh, I don't know I guess we could say has a, a very big over the top personality. Does a lot of like goofy shit. When he does that stuff, it's kind of funny. You know, like oh you know here's here's Jack Black jumping off tables and screaming and being zany, and it works for him because he's super charismatic. If I did the same thing, you would go what a fucking asshole. Like, who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? That's because Jack Black is more charismatic than I am. He can pull that shit off and I can't. So I think you have to be realistic with yourself. You've got to, you've got to understand. I believe that charisma is something you were born with. Um, Maybe you can improve it a little bit, but uh, only a little bit. You've either got it or you don't. And um, again, it's not as simple as being good looking because there's lots of good looking people who try to get into the, into the entertainment industry and fail because it takes more than just good looks for people to want to pay attention to you, at least in the sense of entertainment. So I think you have to be honest with yourself if you're in a band and you really want to take it seriously. You have to be honest with yourself. Like, do I have charisma or not? Or, or how, I mean, it's not a one or a zero, it's a scale. So how much charisma do I have? Do I have a little bit, a lot, a ton, very little, you know, you're going to have to be honest with yourself there and then set your expectations accordingly. Like if you are a super charismatic person, if you're the life of every party, if you're like the person that everybody pays attention to when you walk in the room, then maybe you've got a future. Um, Although if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not that person. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, if if the answer is yeah, I'm the, always the center of attention. Okay, then maybe you've got something. But chances are you're not that person. Chances are that you probably are more into the craft of music, which is like playing and writing music, than you are like being the center of attention. Um, and in that case, I think you just have to accept that this is probably going to be a hobby for you. And you're probably not going to be super successful uh, as, a, as a band because 
charisma is the key factor there more so than anything else. Um, and so that is my thought. Um, I, I don't think that putting a lot of effort into your image, um, will do anything for you if you don't have charisma. Uh, I don't think that good songs are, uh, in and of themselves sufficient, uh, certainly doesn't hurt, but charisma is the defining, uh, the defining attribute for performers, in my opinion. So that is my answer. I hope that was helpful. Next question from William Willis. Uh, hey, Finn, first off, congrats on becoming URM's new director of marketing. I recently read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and I'm looking at ways to apply some of the tactics he talks about in his book. One of the things I was thinking about doing is setting up a web store for my own merchandise. I could continue to go around town and sell my merch in person, but that gets time-consuming. My question is, have you read Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek? If so, how have you applied some of the things you have learned in the book to your career? Um, so the answer is no, I have not read it. I'm very familiar with Tim's work. Uh, we worked with him a whole lot at Creative Live. I don't know him personally. I met him once, but I, I don't know him. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with the book. I'm familiar with the concepts. Um, and, oh, I'm trying to figure out the right way to answer this diplomatically. Um, the, the basis of it is pretty simple. First of all, the 80-20 rule, which uh, if you're not familiar with, it's uh, also uh, is also known as like the power law and lots of other things. Which basically is that 80% of your results in any given thing are going to be determined by 20% of what you do. So to use a you know an example from mixing, you know, Joel talks about this all the time in, in the speed mixing stuff is like you're going to get 80% of the way there by doing the you know, 20% of your mix moves. And then the other 80% is going to make your mix better, but only 20% better. So, you know, if you want to get good results fast, like focus on those 20% of the mix moves that are going to like get you to, a, you know, to the 80% level very quickly. Um, so I, I apply that idea all the time. And, you know, Tim Ferriss did not invent this. This has been around since, you know, whatever, like hundreds of years ago or something. So, uh, yes, I am always, you know, I'm, I'm big on efficiency and wisely allocating your time because, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. So obviously you want to spend those wisely on the things that are going to make the biggest difference. And actually, um, uh, Tony Robbins puts it uh, in a way that was really helpful to me, which is don't major in minor things. I, I may have talked about this before. If I did, apologies, but I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, the way that I applied that was many years ago when I was in school, I was majoring in graphic design and I was kind of wondering, to make a long story short, I was I was having some doubts that this was the the right place to focus my energy. And then I heard Tony Robbins say, don't, and so I was like, oh, should I change my major to marketing? And then I heard Tony Robbins say, don't major in minor things. And, you know, it was literally, I took that very literally and I said, okay, I got to make a change. I'm going to focus my energy on the thing that's going to, you know, get me the best results in life, which in my opinion was uh, focusing on marketing and that, and that worked out well. The other thing that he talks about a lot in that book um, is outsourcing or delegating, whatever. This is the one I'm a little skeptical on. Um, and so he talks about using a lot of like virtual assistants and stuff like that. Joey's big on this too. Um, and I don't know, I'm just a little bit skeptical there because I don't think, I think you have to be very careful about what you outsource. Um, and I don't think that these virtual assistants are going to do a very good job of a lot of things, especially like I don't want somebody else to respond to my emails and send out meeting invites um, and stuff like that. The, the idea is that you outsource these things to a virtual assistant because they're trivial and not important. But I don't actually think that's true. I think these those things are really important. Um, like the, the the text you put in a meeting invite matters a lot. Like that's the difference between someone getting the email invite, you know, so if you know you get the the invite in your Gmail or whatever it says Joey Sturgis has you know has invited you to such and such a meeting at 4 p.m. on Tuesday and you read the description. And what it says in that the text in that description is the difference between 
or, or can be the difference between you looking at the invite and going, what the fuck is Joey talking about? Like, what? Or, oh, okay, cool. I'm glad we're meeting about this. And, it, and, and it, it's, it's the difference of just a couple words in that meeting invite could make the difference between me going into this meeting with an extremely negative outlook on what we're going to talk about or an extremely positive outlook on what we're going to talk about. And if we're making an important business decision in that meeting, that's a big deal. Like it's non-trivial what you put in that stuff. And of course, the same for any email. Again, the difference between how you, you know, so some of these people have assistants respond to their emails. Um, again, because the assumption is that replying to these emails is a trivial task that is, you know, beneath them or that they should be focusing on more important stuff. But again, you know, the, the, opening line in an email, the subject line in an email, you know, including a, a, a friendly uh, closing to the email, you know, whatever. These little things that are, you know, commonly thought of as insignificant details, I think they're fucking important. So, you know, there is a place for virtual assistants, of course. Um, this is just my opinion. You know, again, they, they work great for other people. You know, Joey loves them. Tim loves them. So, I mean, those are successful people and, and they work for them. So you should take my opinion with a grain of salt. But I'm not comfortable outsourcing a lot of things in my life. Um, I, I would rather focus on doing less things and do them well rather than... Um, rather than do more things and delegate them to other people who may or may not do them well. Um, delegation is, well, outsource them, I should say. Delegation is a whole other topic. Um, the other thing in regards to William's question, so he, he said, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is setting up a web store for my own merchandise. I could continue to go around town and sell my merch in person, but that gets time consuming. So this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like, if you think you're going to like delegate that to someone, you're fucking high. Like running a web store is fucking hard. Like that's pretty much a full-time job or damn close to it. Like if you think you're just going to like hire some virtual assistant or intern or something like that to do it and that they're going to do a good job, that's not fucking happening. Like I'll tell you that. So I, I think that instead, a lot of these people that are into Tim's stuff think that there's hacks out there to like somehow magically make cool shit happen without putting in a lot of effort. That's not true. Tim works his motherfucking ass off. Like he's one of the most fucking relentless, hardest working people on the fucking planet. Like maybe he may project an image of like working from the beach or like Tim is not fucking chill. Like there's nothing chill about that guy. Like he's a fucking pit bull. Um, so if, if you read that book and get the idea that, um, there's an easy way to make big shit happen, you're wrong. There are ways to optimize your life and be a little bit more effective or efficient at certain things, but don't get the idea that there's a, a shortcut to like success because there isn't. That's my take. So, William, I hope that was helpful. Uh, next one from Sean O'Shaughnessy, another, uh, another, uh, member of the URM family. Uh, he works with Amherst on the student sports stuff. Awesome job guys. So he says, so we hear a lot of doomsday talk about how live shows are dying. You come from a punk rock background. So I imagine you have seen your fair share of shows that should have never even happened in that space, but get packed wall to wall. My question is in today's world and going forward, uh, what are things people can do to engage and start filling these venues marketing using marketing strategies and stuff. I'm actually not going to answer this question, and here's why. I don't have any experience promoting shows, and I am a firm believer in only speaking about things in which I believe that I can uh, answer the question and, and speak from a place of authority, and I believe that authority comes from personal experience. Uh, it would be easy for me to get up here and you know, say, I think you should do this, 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 and this to promote a show. But I think anybody that's promoted a show would probably listen to me and go, this guy's full of shit. He doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about um, because I don't have any experience. So, Sean, I'm not going to answer this question um, because of that. And if you're listening to this, um, I would suggest that you do the same. Like, it makes you look fucking dumb when you try to 
answer a question that you don't know the answer to or try to talk about something in which you actually uh, don't have a lot of knowledge that makes you look stupid it doesn't make you look smart like a lot of people um a lot of people make this mistake is they think that by trying to bullshit people you know um and uh, and, and, and act like an expert in a field in which they're not an expert. Like they think that's going to somehow trick people into thinking they're smart. It won't like, it might trick a couple stupid people, but who cares what stupid people think you care about what the smart people think. Uh, and the smart people will respect you a lot more if you say, man, I don't know, like that's, uh, that's outside my area of expertise or maybe it is your area of expertise, but you don't have enough details and you go, Hmm. I'm not sure. I'd have to know more before I could answer that. That will make people respect you. So I would suggest that what you, that's what you do. Uh, Sean, there are probably lots of other people in our network who have a lot more expertise in promoting shows than I do. So I think you'll get a better answer from them on this one than you will get from me. Next question from John Marsh. Hey, Finn, my question is about career changes. Currently, I have a good career that I'm thriving in, earning good money, doing interesting work. I've been doing it for 10 years, and so far, so good. However, it's not a career that I feel can be done forever physically. I would estimate that in 10 years' time, I'll be 42 and completely unable to thrive in this career. Colleagues who have pushed past this kind of wind down and end up just cruising in retirement, and that's not for me. So in trying to forward plan, I'd like to know what you think about sudden career changes, i.e., do you think someone should just dive in and throw themselves into it, or could I be doing things now to build up towards that point? For example, if I decided in 10 years that I'd like to go into mixing full-time, I could take on mixing work now in my spare time, but would doing it part-time and not able to fully commit to it potentially harm my reputation in the future? Uh, This is a great question. Lots and lots and lots of people want to make some sort of a career transition. Very common thing to say, you know, I'm doing X now, but I want to do Y, how do I do it? So I, uh, I here, here are my thoughts. So first of all, um, I love that you're thinking 10 years into the future. So you said, I would estimate that in 10 years time, and I'll be, I'll be unable to thrive in this career. That's so smart because most people don't think that way. And you have to, no matter how old you are, like you got to be able to think in several different, um, several different time horizons. You got to think about like, what am I going to do tomorrow? Uh, and then you should also be thinking about, you know, two, you know, maybe one or two years down the road, like what's my next move. And then, and then five or 10 years down the road, which is like, you know, where do I want to be at that point? And then you work backwards from that and go, if I want to be at this place in 10 years, what can I do tomorrow to set me on that path? Um, so I love that you're thinking about, hmm, what's going to happen in 10 years? Because you're right. There's so many jobs where it's like, you know, someone might be uh, super successful today. You know, like being in a band is one of them, unfortunately, for a lot of people is like, you know, you could be 28 years old and making an okay living in a band, which is hard. I mean, I'm not putting that down. Like to make a living at all off of playing in a band is really hard. Um, and, you know, maybe you've been doing it for a long time and you're 28 years old and, it's like, wow, I made it. I'm, you know, paying the bills with my band. And I'd say, great, but what about in 10 years from now? Are you going to be 38 and still doing your band? Maybe, but probably not. So you should be thinking uh, that, I mean, I, I've known lots and lots of people in bands who have had this exact conversation with themselves and with me, by the way, is, you know, you, you should always be thinking about what's going to happen in 10 years. So uh, I will, I will assume let's let's say that you want to be um mixing full-time uh as you said uh and you said well doing it part-time and not able to fully commit to it potentially harm my reputation in the future so maybe kind of but you don't really have a choice i think in general it's a bad idea to jump into a career transition overnight um it's certainly high risk and i'm a risk averse person um, the, the, you know, everybody's risk tolerance is different and without knowing, you know, the details of your life and your personality and all that stuff, it's hard for me to, um, make a specific suggestion there. But in general, I don't think it's a good idea because anytime you're doing something for the first time, you're not going to be doing a great job of it. So to go from like job X to job Y overnight, like you're probably going to be shitty at the new job. 
and you're going to have a really hard time of it. You might just completely fall on your fucking face and without a safety net, that's pretty scary. So I would recommend if you want to make a big transition from like a one, one completely different field to the other, do it on nights and weekends for, uh, you know, a while, um, until you feel like you're in a good spot where you can pull the trigger. And even then it's going to be scary. Um, I mean, as, as an example, before I became the full-time director uh, here at URM, you know, I've been working with these guys in various different capacities for quite a while and doing a bunch of other freelance work, uh, you know, stuff like that, such that, you know, after doing that for a year, I was finally able to go, okay, I'm ready to make this transition. And then I did it. If I would have done it overnight, um, I don't think I would have, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that would have been a smart idea. I think that you, I think you got to build up to it slowly over time. And that's going to be hard because then you basically are going to be working two or one and a half jobs and that's tough. So, you know, during the year in which I was kind of, and, and that's, that's how long it took me to make this transition is a year, like a year ago, I said, okay, I think I want to make this transition. How do I make it happen? So I took on as many freelance jobs as I could, you know, in this space to like build skills and build experience and, you know, make some money, save up stuff like that. Um, and slowly ramped it up. And during that year, you know, I was getting up at 5.30 a.m. Uh, every day, including Saturday and Sunday, and working on that stuff in the morning. And then after I got home from Creative Live, working on it at the at night too. So I was working from, you know, 5.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. or so uh, every day during the week. And then on the weekends, I'd get up at 5.30 and work until noon or something like that. So by the time lots of other people are just kind of you know, taking off, you know, putting their pants on for the first time in the day. I had already been working for like six hours. It was hard, physically and mentally exhausting. No doubt about it. That was tough. But that was the right way to do it because then it just became kind of obvious that like, all right, it's time, like, it's just time to make this transition to doing this full time. It was obvious. And the transition was really easy because I had worked up to it over time. You know, if you, same as, you know, you could compare it to like, you know, running a race, you know, would you just get off the couch and run a marathon? Of course not. You'd, you'd train for it and work up to it such that when you eventually did decide to run that marathon, you were prepared for it. So <clears throat> Johnny, I love the way you're thinking about this, like thinking 10 years in the future, super smart. So what I recommend is that you just really think clearly about how you can work backwards from your goal of 10 years from now, or maybe actually I would, I would say one or two years from now would probably be probably better. You don't want to wait 10 years to make a career change. Think about where you want to be in one or two years and then make a plan starting tomorrow. How are you going to get there? All righty. Next question from Chris Boyd. Uh, hey, Finn, happy to have you on board with URM. My question is about branding. When you're in the early stages of any endeavor, how would you go about deciding what the brand should be, when to throw more funds behind marketing for your brand, and how to expand your brand with more merch? For example, I have a band. We had gotten a shirt made that looked uh, that had our name in a great font, which we took away from the shirt and now use it on flyers and future CD and shirt designs. But seeing as how we're typical musicians, we're not made of money and we all have opinions on what to do next. Do you have any tips on how we could expand anything we're missing and any tips on keeping everyone on the same page? Um, so the first thing I would do is maybe, uh, maybe correct what I believe is a common misconception about branding. Like people think branding is the logo you put on something. You know, they think the brand is what font you type the name of the company in or whatever, or the, the, or, or in this case, the band's logo. But that's not what it is. Your brand is the sum total of what people outside of your company or outside of your organization think about you. And the logo is a small part of that. Um, to use like one example um, from something uh, we're, I'm sure, all familiar with is the Metallica logo. Like, it's totally iconic now, obviously. I mean, like you see the every fucking company under the sun has done a Metallica parody shirt and 
celebrities are wearing these and all this stuff and you know there's you can get the metallica font so you can type out your word in that logo that has like the lightning bolt things on either side did the did did that did the logo and so metallica is an iconic brand but did the logo create that brand or did the brand create the logo i think it's the second one i think metallica built that iconic brand by busting their motherfucking ass since 1981 or whatever they started you know and defining the genre of thrash metal and touring their asses off and blah 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 you know all the stuff they did is what imbued that logo with great meaning not the other way around so you could have had that same logo for some shitty band that went nowhere and we wouldn't think it was a great logo it would just be another logo um and I'm sure there's some local band that was around the same time, you know, it was peers of Metallica that probably had a better logo than they did, but nobody remembers that one because the band sucked and Metallica is great. And so that's why people remember that logo. So I would focus. So, so to kind of get back to your question is decide, you know, it's like you said, how would you go about deciding what the brand should be? You decide what the logo should be, but you don't actually get to decide what the brand should be because the brand is defined by the audience. The brand is defined by the public, not you. You can only put the raw materials out there, which is like your music and your artwork and the things you say and who you are and how you conduct yourselves when you're at shows, you know, how you act on stage, um, whatever these, you know, all the, the million different ways that you interact with the public are just the raw materials you put out there and then the public creates the actual brand, you know? So for example, if you say something stupid in an interview and it, you know, becomes one of these viral articles on Metal Sucks where it's like, you know, Chris Boyd from such and such brand thinks that Donald Trump is blah, blah, blah. What a fucking idiot. You know, well, you just, um, you, you just made a big negative impact. Uh, you, you put out some, you put some raw materials out there that had a negative impact on your brand. On the other hand, if you put out um, some great artwork or say something really smart or do something uh, you know, that people, you know, find valuable, then you put out raw materials that raw materials that made a positive impact on your brand. So, um, getting, getting into the specifics of what you're asking, which is basically, I think, um, you know, what should our logo look like or what should, what should we do as far as like artwork and stuff like that? I wouldn't worry about that too much. Like, or, or at least, you know, yeah, like, of course you want to put your best foot forward, but don't think that the artwork or the logo or what font you put on your shirt is, is going to make or break your band. Cause it's not like, it probably won't make a difference at all really. Um, so do the best you can with what you have, but like, don't obsess over it. Like don't, don't waste your time. Like arguing over what fucking color, the logo should be on, you know, your website or your Facebook or whatever, whatever it is like focus on the big picture, which is like, what are we putting out into the world such that people can walk away from it? Um, paying attention, you know, with, with a positive impression of what we're doing and, you know, the inclination to pay attention to things we're doing in the future. Um, and think, worry less about what font and color you use. So, Chris, thank you for your question. I hope that was helpful. Next question is from Anthony Potenza. Finn, how would you advise a newer studio to convince artists slash bands to come to you when there are other studios that have been around the area longer? I'm a newer studio owner who's been building personal relationships with local band members for the last year. I know my product is high quality, and I'm only trying to keep the music coming out of my city sound the best it can. I'm making sure I'm not coming off as quote-unquote selling myself at shows, but as a guy who genuinely wants to help bands reach their potential. It's just hard when they've already heard of those other studios, and I'm the young guy in town that they haven't heard of for the last three years like the others. Thanks for taking the time to answer this. Great question. Uh, and again, I've never specifically marketed a studio. However, I have marketed lots of other services businesses. For example, the uh, product design firm I 
worked for for many years um kind of had the same challenge we were in cincinnati which is not the coolest city in the world um and our challenge was getting on and but we did we did well locally um among the clients we had there but we wanted to get on the national radar and we had kind of the same challenge it's like well i i I know that we do good work because i see the work coming out of these other agencies and ours is most definitely just as good if not better than most um but how do we how do we get people to uh, see us that way? So this is a super common challenge for creatives of all types. Is basically like I'm the I'm the little guy, and I'm I believe in the work that I'm doing. But how do I get people to uh, how do I get people to to notice me and then convince uh, them to work with me? So uh, a couple things there. First of all, you said. Um, I'm the young guy in town that they haven't heard of for the last three years, like the others. First of all, this stuff takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, three years is really not even that long. So it, it sounds to me like you have been trying. You you you've you've been trying to compete at this level for substantially less than three years because you're saying three years as though that's like a really long time. So maybe you've only been trying to, uh, you know, seriously promote yourself for one or two years or something like that. So, um, patience is part of this. All these people that you, you, you know, it's a very common thing. You know, you've heard people say like the 10 year overnight success by the time you hear about somebody, uh, they've already put in years and years and years and years of hard work to get there. So just because you are hearing about them today uh, doesn't mean that they only started today. Uh, So do be patient, keep doing what you're doing. But then the second part of that uh, is it says, how would you advise a newer studio to convince artists and bands to come to you? And there are other studios that have been around the area longer. You tell me that's the question you have to answer. Like, why should they? Um, you know, you're saying, I want to help them sound their best. Okay, so does everybody else. What's different about you and your work and the way you do things and, you know, whatever it is, what's different and why should they come to work for you? Like, that's step number one is you've got to really answer that uh, in your own mind. So put yourselves in the shoes of this band um, and they're looking for somebody to record their their album uh, and, you know, looking at kind of the local playing field, there's, you know, 10 or 20 options for them. Are they going to go with somebody they've never heard of, or maybe just heard that person's name once or something like that? Or, you know, assuming that everyone's work is pretty good, um, you go, wow, okay, so everybody's doing pretty good work. Are we going to go with a person who we've never heard of or only heard of once, or are we going to go with a person that we've heard of 10 or 20 times? I would go with the person that you've heard of 10 or 20 times uh, unless the the little guy had done something to convince me that uh, they were a better fit for me. And there's a lot of ways that that could happen. It could be, it could be your creative point of view. Uh, I've talked about this before. It's super important. The examples that I always use here, uh, the, the point of view, think of that as like your creative uh, thumbprint such that uh, anybody who you know looks at or listens to your work should be able to immediately go oh Anthony made that and you know that's a, a not many of us ever get to the point where it's like you know unmistakably ours in the whole world but that's what you should be striving for and the examples that I, I often use here on the uh, production side of things are like Kurt Blue and Joey. Uh, Kurt obviously is like more organic and nasty and dirty and raw. Joey is like super clean and precise and cinematic and all that. One isn't better or worse than the other, but they're very different. And so then it's it's an obvious choice who you would go to um, based on uh, you know your your material and and what you're looking for. Like it, it's probably never once been a conversation of a band like, wow, should we go to Joey Sturgis or Kurt Ballou? Like, I don't think anybody's, <laughs> I don't think that's ever been the question. Uh, it's, should we go to Kurt or the five other people that kind of do his style only not as well as he does? Obviously, you're going to go to Kurt because he's the best at it. Um, 
So that's one way that you could set yourself apart. Another way you could set yourself apart uh, is by the way you work. You know, maybe um, maybe you take a more active hand in helping with arrangements and stuff like that as compared to other producers. Or um, maybe you're known for like really pushing people to get the best possible performances. I'm, I'm saying that you're uh, engineer, uh, an engineer as well. I don't know if you are, but you know, whatever it is, you get the idea. The point is, or if you're a mixer, maybe you're known for like, you know, you take their, um, kind of like Joey, you know, you take the raw material they give you, but then you add a bunch of your own kind of, uh, your own shit to it. Um, and they're going to get something back. That's like 20 times cooler than what they gave you. So you're going to have to figure that part out. Cause I, you know, I, I don't know you, so I, I, I can't really give you a suggestion as to what those differentiators are going to be, but you got to figure out what those are. And then the second thing is you just got to like get it out there. So um, you're going to shows and meet everybody. That's awesome. Like definitely keep doing that. But also think about what can you do to, you, you said, I'm the young guy in town that they haven't heard of for the last three years, like the others. Well, how can you change that? How can you be the person that they have heard of a million times um, three years from now? Um, there's lots of ways that that could happen. But, you know, again, I, I it, it's hard for me to say what those should or shouldn't be without knowing more about you. But like work backwards from there. Do you want people to write about you or are you going to take the thought leadership route where, you know, for example, um, what if you you know, put out like a video or PDF or something like that video is probably better. That's like, you know, 10 things a local band should do before they even think about setting foot in the studio. And, you know, maybe you share that out to everybody in the area or, you know, whatever. That's just one example, but like thought leadership is another way that you can get yourself out there. Um, you could start, um, you know, putting on shows yourself. You could have parties at your studio, you know, I don't know. Like, but the point is like, you have realized that part of the, part of the reason they, they come to a studio is simply because they've heard that person's name a bunch of times. So how do you get them to, to hear your name many times? You're going to need to figure that out, but I think that's what you need to do. So, um, to summarize first, be patient and understand this stuff takes time, takes years. It's not going to happen in six months. Uh, second, is you need to, in your own head, understand the answer to the question of why should they work with me instead of the other guys? And then third, you need to find a way to get that out there so that they hear that message and they see your name again and again and again over the next few years. All right, Anthony, thank you for sending that in. I'm moving on to Matt. Dear Finn, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the following subject. I've been mixing for the few clients that I have for a while now, and I'd love to expand the operation. I'm working for my home studio, which I'm slowly building up to look as nice as it possibly can so the clients feel nice and cozy when that's a studio. The thing is, I'm not sure what to focus on when it comes to self-promotion besides preparing a nice selection of work as my portfolio. Do I try to make the room as nice as I can and get a photographer to take some shots of the place so I have some visual materials for the Facebook page? Or do I try to avoid from exposing the fact that I don't have much fancy gear lying around, which without a doubt is very often crucial in the decision-making process, whether or not someone should pick me for their project. Sometimes it feels like it's even more important for some people than the projects I produce and mix. Uh, this is a rather big issue with I, where blah, 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 blah. Um, okay, I'm going to skip over some of this. How do I position myself for exposure, meaning online presence, some ads? How can I break the circle of, oh, sorry, he has more gear, so he has to be better? Any advice or thoughts are more than welcome. Thanks for doing this. Okay, I, I would love to hear... I would hear I would love to hear some thoughts some some feedback on this like is it really true that people that like bands make decisions based on whether somebody has nice gear or not uh, I am not sure that it is uh, what I'm very certain of is that if they are making that decision they have no fucking idea what nice gear is like Zero bands know what a Shadow Hills compressor is. So even if you have one, you're not going to get any credit for it. So putting that front and center like on your Facebook page or your website or bragging about that on social media, the only people who give a flying fuck what kind of compressors you have are other producers. So I really question that. Now, you guys tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. I, you know, maybe I am full of shit here, but 
I don't think that anybody in a band knows the difference between good and bad gear because a lot of producers don't even really have a super informed point of view on that. People in bands most definitely don't, I think. But if I'm wrong, you guys tell me. So uh, as you might guess, I certainly don't think that uh, that is what you should focus on when it comes to putting yourself out there. Uh, I think that the way bands make decisions is has this producer done good work for a band in their genre that is successful? Like, ideally, you want to be able to, like, in a perfect world when you're in a band, like, you want to say, um, you want to be able to tell people, oh, yeah, we're going to start recording our EP uh, in a couple months and we're going to so-and-so. And so-and-so is the produ- is the person who produced a band that's kind of the next notch up on the food chain from you. So if you're uh, a, a local or regional band, that's like the person who, who recorded the, the, the breakout band that's a Baby National now. If you're a Baby National, then uh, it's stepping up to work with one of the you know, world-class people like we have on Nail the Mix. If you're somebody that's working, that's already working with people that are Nail the Mix level, then it's, you know, we're going to record with, you know, CLA or, you know, Bob Rock or Rick Rubin or something like that. So that, I think, is how they make these decisions is they go like, you know, they, they want to move one notch up the food chain. And I, and I think this is an important part. I don't think they move up two or three or four notches up the food chain. Like, no local band actually thinks that they're going to record, you know, with, uh, you know, with Rick Rubin. I mean, they might kind of joke about that, but they don't actually think that's going to happen. And they're not like, they're not that delusional. Like people in bands are stupid, but they're not that stupid. Um, I don't think, <laughs> uh, and I don't even really think like a local band might, you know, work with, you know, a Chris Crummett or a Kurt Blue or something like that, but but probably not because unless like unless there's some labels like hype band, like unless some label has decided that 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 they are gonna like invest a lot in this local band and like try to turn them into like a big a big deal, they can't afford it and they're not ready and they kind of know that. So I I, I think people want to go one step up the ladder. And, and, and they do that because they believe that the person that, that recording with this person or having this person mix master, whatever it is like working with this person will help them move one step up the ladder, which I think is true. Um, if you are a regional band who wants to get like on the national level working with, you know, a Joey, a Kurt, a Chris, you know, Nolly, whatever, that's a good idea because like it probably will that it, it will ensure that your product that you put out is like can compete on the national level. So with that said, I, and again, I don't think any band has ever said, Oh, we got to go record with so-and-so he's got five U 87s in a shadow Hills. Like nobody has ever said that. <laughs> and if they have like, you know, who cares? Like that's such a tiny subset of people. That's just, that's not how people think about this stuff. So with that in mind, how do you insert yourself into this dynamic? So for example, if you know, you're um, working with local bands, which it sounds like you probably are, or, you know, internet bands in a certain genre, whatever, like keep doing what you're doing and try really hard to associate yourselves yourself with the ones who are likely to like break out and go to the next level. Um, or, you know, if you can find a way to work with a band that has made it to the next level, that's great. But I think probably what you want to do is like if there's, say, 10 bands in your area uh, and one of them is, is, is the, you know, looks to be the top dog that might get signed next year or something like that, do something with them, like find a way to work with them. So then after they get signed, now you're the guy that's worked with so-and-so, the local band that broke out and got signed by a national label. And so now the local bands are going, oh, we got to go record with Matt because he works with so-and-so and they're, you know, and they're on rise now. So that's the way it's going to work. Um, and then once you're that guy, then you just repeat over and over and over again. So you're, you're working with these local bands and, or the like breakout bands that are kind of regional or baby nationals. You just repeat. That's how you do it. So that is my suggestion. Um, and as you know, you're, you're thinking about the online presence and all of that is important, I suppose, but 
don't think about like Facebook ads and stuff like that. Like that's not that that's such a tiny little detail. That's like asking, you know, like what you know color the uh what what kind of knobs you should put on the dresser drawer in the fourth bathroom of your mansion. It's like don't even worry about that. You don't have a mansion yet, so don't even think about what kind of knobs to put on the dresser drawers. Um, I would just focus on like building those relationships with the kind of people I described, like the the artists that are likely to break out to the next level. Um, and you know, your website, you know, your, your online presence is part of that for sure. But, um, don't worry about like the little nitty gritty details, Facebook ads and stuff like that. Um, cool. Well, uh, Matt, I hope that was helpful. I am going to move on to the next one from Michael Cooper. Uh, Hey Finn, I recently read your article on college and I was wondering if you could give some insight slash advice on potential fields of study for creative types. What degrees will give you a real life advantage? Uh, So what Michael is referring to is on my website, uh, thepunkrockmba.com. I wrote an article which said you should probably go to college with some exceptions. Uh, And those exceptions are fields where it doesn't matter, such as uh, audio. <laughs> Nobody really gives a fuck where you went to school. In fact, I think people might possibly think less of you if you went to school because a lot of the people who go to school for audio are clowns. Um, any case, that's what he's talking about. So the punk rock MBA.com, MBA like uh, Masters of Business Administration. Um, and he is wondering what are some insight slash advice on potential fields of study for creative types that will give you a real life advantage. So this is an important part. The, um, the, the part where he's saying what degrees will give you a real life advantage is really critical. So Michael, it's great that you're thinking about it this way because that that's the right way to think about it. Um, as I said, in audio, it won't give you a real life advantage. In photography, it won't give you a real life advantage. Like nobody has ever asked where a wedding photographer went to. Like, well, what you know, what uh, college did you study photography at? Like nobody has ever asked that of a wedding photographer. They just look at your portfolio. Um, there's probably some other creative fields that are like that that I'm just not. Oh well, fine art, obviously, um, but that's kind of not really a job. Um, so the big exceptions to that are design. So like graphic design, industrial design, fashion design, interior design. It totally matters what you major in and where you went to school in those fields. If you want to be a graphic designer, you're going to have a really fucking hard time doing it if you didn't go to college for it. There are exceptions, of course. People do it. And some of the best designers I know didn't go to college for graphic design. But they're definitely the exception, not the rule. And you should not make decisions based on the people who are exceptions. Like you see this all the time, like, well, I'm going to drop out of school because Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of school. Okay. Well, you're not fucking Bill Gates. So why would you, why would you base your decisions on what Bill Gates did? Bill Gates is a fucking once in a fucking generation freak outlier. You're not, I'm not. So we got to do stuff that uh, is for normal people, for for mere mortals, which Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates are not. Um, in any case, so getting back to the question of the creative fields, so like the the thing with these design fields is the reason why it's going to give you a real life advantage is twofold. Um, the first is that it's going to be really hard for you to even get on anybody's like to to get to a place where a potential employer is going to talk to you if you don't have a degree on your resume. So like you're going to apply for this job or uh, whatever. And and if you didn't go to college, they're probably just like, you probably lost right there because they got 50 applications for this job from people who did go to college. And they're not going to, again, just like I was talking about before with like, you know, when you're choosing a studio or you're going to, uh, go with the person you've never heard of or only heard of once, or are you going to go with the person that you've heard of 20 times? People were, people generally speaking go, they, they, they want to choose, they want to tie themselves to the horse who has won in the past. That's generally how people work, um, which it, it, it is not always the right way to, to, to approach things, but it's reality. Like we both, like everybody listening to this knows that, past success doesn't mean that you're the right person for this particular job, 
But that's how the world works. So I would advise that you structure your decisions accordingly. So first of all, you're probably not going to make it through the job screen process in design, like if you didn't go to one of those schools. And actually, I would encourage you, if you want to be in one of those fields, don't just go to any school. Go to the most like elite school you can possibly get into and afford. It's worth it because... Uh, that matters so much. Like degrees matter in the design field. And like, you know, it, it depends on whether it's graphic or fashion or industrial or whatever. But if you look these up, you know, there's the top 10 or top 20 schools in each of these fields. You should try really hard to go to one of the top 10 schools because it's just going to make your life easier in the beginning of your career, which is the hardest part. If you went to, you know, art center or, you know, Cranbrook or RISD or something like that for graphic design, you're automatically like going to stand out from the rest of the applicants. Um, and so you've already kind of won uh, half the battle right there just by standing out. So that's the first reason why uh, design, why, why in design uh, degrees matter a lot. The second reason is because you actually will learn stuff. Like there's a uh, common idea, which is totally fucking wrong that, you don't actually learn anything in college. It's just a piece of paper. Like, oh, so you just learn a bunch of like, you know, shit that has nothing to do with the real world. That is bullshit. Um, that's true in some fields, but it's definitely not true in all of them. Um, computer science, for example, like uh, self-taught programmers generally have a uh, lack of understanding of the fundamentals of computer science that uh, holds them back compared to people who did go to school for computer science. Like I used to do uh, a, a good amount of like front end web development back in the day when you could do it um, as somebody who was self-taught, which uh, I mean, you still can, but it's a lot harder now. And I, and I bounced off it because I realized that like, I didn't know like data structures and algorithms and stuff like that, that, um, that people who went to school for computer science did. And I was at a real disadvantage because of that. And it's the same in design. Like there's fundamentals of like composition and color and, you know, texture and rhythm and typography and stuff like that, that you're going to learn if you go to college for it. Because like, for example, I I went to school like for two years for graphic design and the first year of it was just all these fundamentals classes, like, you know, paint, like, painting like color studies and you know doing these like uh composition studies with just like black blocks and all this stuff that was like not a lot of fun um it was kind of like annoying and boring uh but in hindsight i realized that i learned so much from it and i have like a really solid grasp of the fundamentals that self-taught people don't um and and so I think that you'll find if you try to be a self-taught designer, you're going to you're going to have a hard time keeping up with the people who were educated in it because they know the fundamentals and, and you probably won't. And in theory, you could teach yourself that stuff, but you're probably not going to because I know I wouldn't have done all those tedious uh, composition studies and stuff if some teacher wasn't forcing me to do it. So. Uh, yeah, so you're, so you're a going to have an easier time of making it through the resume screen and B, you're going to have some actual skills. So getting back to the original question, like what are some, uh, fields of study for creative types that will give you a real life advantage? I would say design is the big one. Um, you know, and then you could also include, um, I don't know, like I would include, well, no, never mind. Yeah, design is is the big one, I would say. Um, and if you want to do photography or audio, I v- would very strongly advise that you consider not going to school for that because it probably won't help you very much. Michael, thank you for your question. Last question is from Daniel. Dear Finn, thanks for doing this. My question is as follows. I'm starting a new band right now. We have the pre-pro for our first release down and already some gigs with promoters that know the members of their bands. We plan to tell everyone about the band when we're ready to release. We're filming a studio diary and also a video for a single and have a cool logo and we'll have two different shirts. The point of all this, we're all in bands since forever and want to take some kind of shortcut to become more of a regional thing right off the bat. Do you think this is the right way to go about it? Just appearing with a release, video material, merch, and some planned weekenders? Or should we do a single first and release the studio diary part by part and then the rest? I know that would be conventional, but I don't think people in our area will care for just a single. 
okay. Well, I, I want to have a disclaimer here, which is that, you know, I'm not an expert in, um, in, in building, uh, in, in marketing a band per se, but so, uh, feel free to disregard my advice because, uh, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but I've been around for a little while and I think I have a pretty good track record of predicting which bands are going to be successful. Um, because the fundamental principles of marketing a band are no different than the fundamental principles of marketing anything else. Now, everybody listening to this, I want you to uh, stop what you're doing and and get ready because I'm going to ask you to do something, which is raise your hand or don't raise your hand. Raise your hand if you give a fuck about some little local band's studio diary. I don't. My hand is down. I do not give a fuck when some band is like, oh, here's part 17 of 50 of our studio diary recording our unremarkable music with somebody you've never heard of. Like, nobody cares. People care if it's corn recording with Ross Robinson because it's fucking corn and it's fucking Ross Robinson. But nobody cares if it's my band recording with some guy down the street that nobody's ever heard of. So I think what what I'm getting at here is not to specifically pick on studio diaries, although um, they do suck for the most part. So I don't think you should do them. Um, what I what I'm what I want to get at here is that there's so many people who just follow the 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 template um, of like with with bands, they just kind of follow the template of what other bands do uh, when it comes to like building their presence. They don't think about it. They're just like, oh, well, uh, the other bands in our genre, you know, did a lyric video and a studio diary and, uh, you know, played in this city and this city. So we're going to do that too. Well, why would you, like, that makes no sense to like duplicate exactly what some other successful band did because the, like by definition, you won't stand out from what they did if you just copy exactly what they did. So like, don't think about, so, okay, I'm going to plug myself again here. My site, thepunkrockmba.com, there's an article called How to Make a DIY Marketing Plan, which will kind of outline, outline all this. But what I want you to do is like, so you're asking like, should we, uh, you know, have merch and this tour? And should we do studio diary, blah, blah, blah. Like, don't think about that stuff yet. That's the tactics. That's like the little shit. And that stuff definitely matters. Like you got to execute that well. But if if you don't have a goal in mind and a strategy for implementing that goal, the tactics don't matter. Like then it's just like running around in circles without knowing. It's just like running at top speed without a destination in mind. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So before you think about, should we release a lyric video or a studio diary? Think like, how are we different than other people in our genre area, whatever. And how are we going to communicate that? There's so many fucking bands right now and they're all putting out this shit. How is yours going to be any different? And as I always say, I don't know you guys, so it's hard for me to say what that is. Um, But like really force yourselves to find a way to be different. And that doesn't mean a different color in your lyric video. It doesn't mean like, you know, oh, well, we're going to do... you know, we're going to, we're going to do a video like in a barn instead of a warehouse. I mean, something that's actually different. Um, what is going to make somebody care and put yourselves in the shoes? Like, I mean, you know, you're on Facebook, like everyone else. I assume you scroll through this and you, everyone promoting their fucking stupid shitty band. Like, do you care about any of that stuff? I don't. So put yourself in their shoes and imagine like, why would I care? Like just recently this band, um, there's some band called Knower, K-N-O-W-E-R. They're like, the, their video uh, was making the rounds on Facebook, got a couple uh, million views, even though they just filmed on an iPhone like in somebody's apartment because they're playing all these like ridiculous like 70s, or not 70s, like 80s, like keytars and stuff like that. And their music's kind of weird like that. So that's how they're different. They're almost like Devo or something and they look like a bunch of nerds. So that stood out because it's, not like everything else you see, you know, when people are plugging their bands, they found something different, which is they got this kind of weird, dorky 80s thing going on. I don't particularly like it, but it caught my attention. And really, that's what it's all about. So if you're a death metal band, don't do the same shit all the death metal bands are doing because 
there's already 500 death metal bands, 5,000 death metal bands. The world does not need 5,001 generic death metal bands. So how are you going to be different? Um, and that's what you have to ask yourself. And you've got to be honest about it. Like you can't, don't let yourselves get away with pretending that some trivial, insignificant difference is a significant one. Like force yourselves to like be really honest about it. Ask other people what they think. And don't ask like your mom, don't ask your fucking best friend that's going to lie to you and tell you it's great. Like ask people who will tell you the truth because if they won't tell you the truth, they're not going to help you. All right. Well, I hope that helps. Um, and that is uh, the last question for this episode of Dear Finn. Very excited to do this. Always look forward uh, to uh, answering your questions. So if you are interested in anything else that I have to say, you know where to find me online. Um, head over to thepunkrockmba.com and you can join our Facebook group as well. You can follow me on Instagram or send me a friend request on Facebook or whatever you want to do. And uh, you can also send in questions for future installments of this. Send it to Finn, F-I-N-N, at urm.academy with dear Finn in the subject, and then I'll answer it on the next episode. All right, signing off for now. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Erlund, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.